This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Hello, and welcome to the Theology Gaming Interview Cast. My name is Zachary Oliver, the owner and proprietor of the Theology Gaming Blog, and with me today is a special guest whose name is... Thomas Henschel. And he is the creator-developer of Archmage Rises? That is correct, Archmage Rises. Okay, I didn't want to get that wrong. Because <laughs> sometimes it's like, are you the developer? or are you? The st- so what are you responsible for in Archmage Rises, just so I have a general idea? <laughs> Um, Other than the genesis of the concept, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's the reverse is easier. What am I not responsible for? In a sense, <laughs> um, you know, in in my past, I've I, I've already released two games and um, you know worked on a team and and that's and so I am still working on a team. I mean, no no art is created in isolation. Um, you know, whether you're whether you're looking at artists in the past and pulling from them or you have people actively helping you um but this game is something special and very personal um to the sense of uh this is my baby this is the kind of the thing that i've always wanted to make or always wanted to exist and i don't see someone else making it and i think i have enough skill to make it so uh so it's it's kind of all me all all I have to give the world um, is in this game, and um, and so all of my thinking, my worldview, my faith, um, everything I've ever played before, uh, like everything is being channeled into this game. Huh. D- does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So, so like, what, I, it, what exactly is Archmage Rises for those who are uninformed? I I really hope I can answer that question. Because I feel that I haven't um, in in <laughs> other ways. <laughs> I've seen the website and yeah. I've read your blogs and I have a general sense of what it is. Okay, but I don't have a very clear sense of as a game what it is <laughs> because as a concept, it sounds brilliant. Okay, so that is the challenge that I have. <laughs> so let me try and let me try and do a really good job explaining what this game is. Okay, so. Um, you want me to answer in terms of game or in terms of concept? How about you answer in terms of concept first, because that's okay. pretty clear to me. But and secondly, in terms of game. Okay. So maybe so the in- concept will help me understand the game. Okay. Um, very, very fair question. And I'm really happy to answer it. Maybe, maybe finally and, and, and conclusively. Okay. So the concept is um, when I play Skyrim and I kill some stuff or I do some stuff, um, there are some ramifications like uh, maybe the guards chase you down or something like that. Or maybe you're not very welcome in the town and stuff. There's some ramifications. When I play um, uh, infamous Second Son – whether I kill someone or I don't kill them, I just incapacitate them and stuff. There seems to really be no difference between doing those things. There's some different graphics or something on the screen, but there's really no long-term ramifications. And I thought, what would it be like for a video game where every action that you take was like real life in that it has long-term implications. So um, if you, kill somebody or you help somebody that carries with you throughout the whole game. And one way, it's not the only way, but one way in which that carries through is on your soul. And C.S. Lewis talked about um, in one of his essays about why do good 
especially for the Christian, why do good if you're just going to be forgiven anyway? And, you know, Paul writes about, uh, well, you know, shouldn't we sin more so that grace abounds more? And he's like, no, God forbid that that should happen and stuff. So that's one side of it. Um, but the other side, what I was really wondering and questioning of is like, okay, well, I'm going to be forgiven for these things. Does it really matter? And the answer is yes, it does because every act of goodness untwists your soul and every act of evil twists your soul. And the danger is if it gets twisted too much that you can no longer untwist. So what that means is uh, to use kind of a straw man or the, the mafioso that has been killing and stealing and doing all these things all of his life, maybe he wants to change his ways and be a better dad and, uh, you know, start a respectable business and all that stuff. And then he finds that he can't. And why is that? It's because of the soul that he has stained and um, his thinking processes have been so formed from his previous choices in life that he can no longer change from that. And so that concept to me was really interesting to pull into a video game. And it's not about... um, I mean, it might sound kind of boring when you go to start to play something. It's like, wait a minute. So I have lots of choices at the beginning and then it really narrows down. No, it's actually the opposite. It's, it's you start with a blank slate and as you start doing things in the world, helpful, hurtful, um, it affects your soul. And as it affects your soul, your soul uh, opens up new options within the game, new good options or new evil options within the game. And so – that is the pure concept of the game. It was like, what if I could make a better version of uh, Second Son or one of these infamous games? Um, what if I can make a Skyrim where every choice mattered for your entire lifetime um, and you accumulate these things? So when you play like a Mass Effect that has the Paragon and the Renegade, um, those things kind of matter, but not really. Yeah. <laughs> In Archmage Rises... It really matters. Um, so in Archmage Rises, if you go and there's uh, somebody who bullied you in mage school and many years later you decide to hunt them down, find them, imprison them in your own mage tower in a prison that you built just for them and you kind of feed them and you torture them and ultimately kill them and suck the life force out of them, um, that affects your soul for the whole rest of the game. <laughs> I think it would in real life. So (laughs) that's exactly. So I'm trying to take what I would call a much more realistic um, view of morality and apply it to a video game. When I'm mean to my wife, which I should never be, but sometimes am when I'm mean to my wife, that affects our lives going forward until I do something to undo that. Right. And so I wanted to make a video game that more accurately represents morality as it is in real life within the video game. And when I look at all of the games that are being developed by atheists, agnostics, relativistic, um, situational ethics type people, I don't see a morality that is even close to real life. And I don't think ever will be like, I think the wrong people are asking the wrong questions. And so I wanted to say, you know what, I'm going to try and make a morality simulator. (laughs) If, if that makes any sense. Wow. That is like insanely ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so that's the conceptual side so so you're basically trying to move away from the 
binary decision trees of, say, Bioware games? Yes, okay. that is 100% accurate. I am not interested in that at all. So you don't want the top one to be good people and the bottom one to be bad people? No. Um, <laughs> I want What I want is for the player to play as themselves, not as someone playing a game, to play as themselves. And so I think with the permadeath that that helps reinforce that like every choice that you make could be your last choice and your only chance of making this choice because there is none of that save load retry type thing oh let's see how the dialogue tree goes this other way or something like all that goes away um so when you are confronted um i'll just give you one for instance it's very early in the in the game um when just after you get out of mage school and uh, and you're you're going down a, a certain path and there's multiple paths you can go down, but anyway, you go down this path and you, you're talking to a noble and he's telling you, "Hey, I have some kind of skeletons in this area that are like causing trouble. They're scaring my people and all this stuff. Go and investigate that." And the reason that the noble's saying that is because you're you're like brand new, just out of mage school. Frankly, if you die, he's not losing a whole lot. So, <laughs> so he's sending you to go and investigate this. And if you could do something about it, hey, he's going to be pretty happy. So you go and you, you start investigating and stuff. And man, this is a real spoiler. Maybe I shouldn't even tell this. Oh, well, I'll keep going. So, so you go and you start investigating this and, um, and you discover that there's uh, a revenant that is behind all this. And the revenant has a certain thing that they're trying to achieve in the game world. Okay. And so when you confront that revenant, you're like, hey, stop us thou, you know, from scaring all these citizens. And, you know, you've probably fought some some skeletons in order to get there to this point and stuff. And now you're encountering this revenant and the revenant is like, wah, ha, ha. Uh, I don't care about you and your, your town and all this stuff. And a normal role playing game would be now you open into a boss battle fight and you kill the revenant and everybody's happy. That's not Archmage Rises. When you get to this moment, you're like, hey, let's open up a parlay. And you talk to the Revenant. You're like, you know what? I'm going to help you. And you can join the <laughs> Revenant and you can you can help him achieve his goal and wipe out the town. Okay? So that is up to you. And there's no like blue because this is a good choice and red because this is a renegade choice or something like that. It's just your choice. You decide if that's interesting for you to defeat the Revenant or to join the Revenant. Make sense? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> permadeath. <laughs> a question about permadeath. Could a decision lead to your death? And I mean not in a combat sense. In a straight dialogue sense. Can I answer that after I just answer your previous question about how does it actually play like? Okay. Um, because then that'll make more sense. I don't um, want to jump too far ahead yet. <laughs> so so how does it actually play? How does it play? play? Yeah. How does it actually play? Um Nobody has played this game, so I'm not sure how helpful this will be. Monster, I love you. It plays exactly like Monster, I love you. <laughs> That's what it plays like. You're like, thanks. You haven't helped me at all. Okay, so then <laughs> the other answer is it plays very similarly to Pirates, Sid Meier's Pirates, either the original one in 87 or the current one in 2004. That's the latest one. Um, it plays like Sid Meier's Pirates. When you go to a town in Sid Meier's Pirates, there's like a list of options like go see the governor. And the governor says, hey, uh, we're at war with the Spanish. Go kill some Spanish. And you're like, right, sir. I'll go do that. And, <laughs> and if you, you don't have to. There, no. 
there's no one telling you to. The game world in Sid Meier's Pirates is alive. There are European nations that are at war with each other, and you decide um, which side you're going to take in those European wars. Maybe maybe you're going to fight for the English against the Spanish and the French, and maybe you're not. Maybe you're just going to join the French. Maybe you're not even going to get involved at all. Um, Archmage Rises plays like that. But the actual like point-and-click interface plays like um, – Kind of like FTL. When you get an FTL and you uh, you go from one sector to another and a bunch of text shows up and it, and it gives you like two options or maybe three options and you decide, am I going to go to that space station that's being attacked by um, giant space spiders or not? There's no binary it's good or it's bad. It's just purely a do you want to get involved or do you not want to get involved? Does that sound interesting? Does it not sound interesting? And it's it's based on your goals as a player – which kind of things you're get, get, going to get involved with. Um, so can you kind of see that in your mind? Like you're, you're presented these pictures and text dialogues and then you have button choices as to like what you're going to do? Yeah, I've, I've played Pirates enough to say this, <laughs> that okay. I would enjoy that kind of style. Um, Pirates has in it um, – the reason I, I uh, hesitate a bit to say it's, it's just like Pirates – is that um, in Pirates, you jump in your ship and you go bombing around the Caribbean, right? Like you're sailing around and whatever. And then you, you get into combat situations. Okay, I don't have that 3D running around in the world um, type thing. And it's for a very specific reason. There's kind of two reasons. Um, the first is I don't have the resources. And frankly, I'm not terribly interested in building like this alive 3D world um, where, you know, everybody animates well. And like, there's so much programming that goes into animation transitions between standing and running and turning and yeah. swiping. And like, there's all this work to make that happen. And I love it as a player. Like, don't get me wrong. I love Skyrim. And I look at it and say, that's fantastic stuff. Okay. I don't have 40 people and I'm not particularly interested in that. What I'm interested in is uh, interesting choices. That's what I'm interested in. So I want to create a world that is alive, um, and it is. Just like the world of pirates, it's alive, and there are forces going on behind the scenes that are constantly running uh, in the background. Whether you do something or you don't do something, the world is changing and evolving, and character relationships are changing and evolving, and this whole world's alive. I want to spend my time on the AI and the story rather than all the 3D graphics and everything. So there's no running around in a 3D world. There's no overhead map in that traditional sense. Um, it's very much like a tabletop role-playing game where you're talking to the GM and the GM uh, is playing an NPC and the NPC says, oh, well, there's this really creepy old house at the end of the hill. Well, now suddenly the players know that they can go to the creepy old house at the end of the hill. Like prior to that, it wasn't an option. But now that they've got some information, it is an option. And so that's how the game plays. So like you go to town and there's like in Noble's house, um, maid shop or something like that. And then you start in interfacing with some of the people and Noble tells you about the creepy house on the hill. Well, now there's a new option in the town. You can click and go to the creepy house on the hill and kind of follow that story and stuff. Does that kind okay. of make sense how yeah, you play yeah. that? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So in the case of the permadeath and the choices, combat – is okay in many role-playing games there's tons of combat and i would even say it's filler for the game um and it's just you know you got to kill all these things before you get cloud and his group from one place to another um in archmage rises the fun is in the choices and so some of those choices lead to combat some of those choices do not and to answer your question about permadeath there are choices in the game that end your game without combat okay <laughs> and um, the reason I did not say you die 
is because Archmage Rises is about your story. It's Zach's story in this procedurally generated world and you play it out. And your end might be by natural causes because you've lived kind of 70 odd uh, years and and now you die. Um, So that's one way that your story ends. It could be because you were kind of a level one mage and you took on a giant ogre and he smashed your head in. Okay, that's how your story ends. (laughs) Um, Or you've made certain life choices in the game where simply your story ends and, and you kind of fade off into the sunset and it's over. Like there's just nothing else. And so in character creation, in that process of character creation, there are choices that end your game. <laughs> that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. And uh, some of my friends are like, wow, like the, the creative integrity kind of like you can actually die during character creation. I mean, it's not dying. It's just your story ends in a certain way. They're just like, that's awesome. And so I, I want people playing the game to know that behind every choice, behind every door – could be a real surprise. And and it's not the kind of like, you know, a haunted house, like they jump out, blah, kind of surprise. Like you, we weren't expecting it at all. Um, e- even in that scenario where you can end the game during character creation, um, the, one of the main characters says, are you sure? Because this seems really out of character for you because you said blah, 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 blah. And your choice is, yes, I'm sure. I want to go down that path. And then it's like, okay, well, game over. <laughs> you know, like that's what you want. That's how your story ends. And so to me, I think that's really cool that I can, I can make this living, breathing world kind of like a dwarf fortress that's just like alive. And I go and I do my story. And maybe my story takes an hour and maybe my story takes 10. But that's my story. And I've had ideas about how you might be able to publish your story like to your Facebook thread or something like that. I don't know. I, I kind of hate getting bombarded by game stuff on Facebook. But you know, if there's some kind of way of sharing your story and pinning it up on the wall or something, I think that might be kind of cool. So, Okay. So this is basically – the structure of the game is how you prevent players from gaming the system, so to speak. Yes. Um, one of my you design goals – You don't want goals- people to basically like go, oh, I want this ending X, right? I no. want a good ending or a bad ending, and then thus I will make these choices specifically to do this. Because I'm going to guess, because of the procedurally generated content, that the results of those choices will change even in slight ways. Yes, that okay. is correct. And that's why, to me, it's important it's a randomly generated world. Um, so, Zach, this is kind of one of my design goals. And I don't know if I'm going to achieve it. I'm, I'm going to be kind of sad if I don't achieve it, and I'm going to be pretty happy if I do. I want to make the unwikiable game. That's what I want to do. I want to make a game where if you go to the archmagerises.wiki.com um, and you're like, okay, I want to see what to do in this particular scenario. All there is blank pages. Don't know. That's what I want for the Archmage Rises wiki. Don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because if you choose to go that pathway because of um, – you know, it's impossible for the person writing the wiki to know how your game world was generated. Was it generated um, because the the NPCs have personality, they have um, interlocking relationships, and so the number of variables as to whether whether you should get involved with the barmaid and the sheriff's um, problems. It, there's too many variables for a wiki to say you should do it or, or they're either going to you know, have to list out about 21 different ways that that can end <laughs> and, and, and you're like, well, I don't know which one of the 21 it is and then and you're right back 
you're right back to having to play the game. Yeah, which is the fun part. Yes. And not looking at a wiki or a strategy guide or something like that. There's something broken if you're playing a game and you have to go read the wiki. Yeah, which is kind of a common occurrence in a lot of the games I seem to play. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast on game design a couple of days ago, and uh, somebody on there said, if it wasn't for the Minecraft wiki, Minecraft never would have taken off. Because how do you know what all the recipes and blah, blah, blah are? That game was saved by a wiki. And I think that that's a huge problem. And so um, there's many games that I, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I go to the wiki and I have to look it up. Archmage Rises, you, you, you decide. It's your story. Are you the kind of person that does this or are you kind of the person that does that? I, I is- like that goal. I like the accessibility of it because the intuitive game design, like I can actually play it and understand how to play it, is something that we kind of lack in a lot of games today. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that there's no way to game the system. I mean, we'll see in closed beta, right? <laughs> well, whether, <laughs> whether that actually happens. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking definitely about what the goal is. The goal is to make a role-playing game that you can't wiki. And uh, I'm sure some of your listeners out there on the internet are going to be like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to wiki that game. <laughs> Thomas is going down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a question here. Yeah. Uh, because of the procedural generation of content, there's always the randomness part of the equation. Yep. And perhaps my, this is more my problem with procedural generation in general, is how do you take steps to prevent unfair scenarios, if there are any at all? Right? If no two games are the same, there's a possibility that some things will be repeated if I see it twice. Right, And... Sometimes, perhaps, I may find myself in a battle I can't win or these things. Those are yeah. intended, I'm guessing, right? Yeah. So, um, But a player's not going to go, I don't like this. It's not fair. So how do you get around that kind of mindset? Great question. The, um, so one answer to that is uh, the game is always fair. And the, what I mean by that is just what I described with the character creation. If you're going down the path kind of the dialogue tree that's going to end the game, it gives you an out. It says, are you really sure this is what you want to do? And you're like, yes. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> thanks for coming out. <laughs> and, um, so that to me is, uh, especially as a GM, like I, I've run uh, D&D 3.5 and uh, D&D 4th edition games. And with my gaming group, um, the one thing you learn pretty quickly as a GM is um, you got to forewarn your, your players. If they get a total party wipe, um, and they had no idea that that was coming, they're really mad at you and they think you suck as a GM. <laughs> if, if you use evocative language like this dragon looks quite large and uh, you, know, you can tell that he's won many battles before and there's bones all over the place and you kind of get a feeling he shouldn't be here and the players are like, screw it, we're going for it. And they get a total, par- total party wipe. Um, they're like – yeah, well, it was a it was a good try or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I think that um, the warning is uh, very important. And so in combat, there is always a way to get away. Um, not in the cheesy way, like you know, you engage in combat, you take a couple rounds, and then poof, you're out. Um, but if you find yourself in a combat situation, you have no hope of winning. You can get out. Huh. Okay. So it's only because you. You decided to kind of push it to the red line. You're like, I'm pretty sure that this is going to be a really hard combat and I'm probably going to lose, but I'm going for it. 
Um, <laughs> you know, and if you die, you knew that was coming. If you don't, man, are you happy? You're like, wow, I'm a hero. I'm awesome. And you feel really powerful and good and stuff. So, um, so that's kind of the general principle is, um, you players need to be warned about where they're going. The second part is, uh, scaling. So, um, I don't actually have a level system, um, in the game and I can talk more about that if you'd like. Um, but when you play Skyrim and they give you a quest and you decide, I'm not going to go to that quest right now. I'm going to go to that quest later. And so it sits around your log, sits around your log, sits around your log, and, and you're growing and, and becoming more powerful, whatever. And then you go do that quest. They scale the enemies to basically your current level. Okay. So what they do with that is um, it doesn't matter anymore when you go and do a particular quest. Like you're not running around like World of Warcraft looking for all the level 10 quests to finish before you do the 11, level 11 quests. Yeah. Um, so Skyrim says, Hey, if it's an open world, um, you are always going to face creatures that are a challenge and, and just, that's the way it is. It's just going to be challenging. And so they, they scale it. And that's similar to what Archmage Rises is doing. I'm, I'm scaling things so that you truly do have, uh, the freedom to do things, but I'm also scaling things. Um, okay. So this is one example of how it's a living world. Um, man, I answer your questions with super long answers. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, so in the living world, I'm really excited about Archmage Rise. I think it's cool. So, so in the living world, okay. So you start somewhere in the world. And I don't know where you're going to start because it's random. So you start in this one place and around that place, there's going to be maybe like giant spiders or something like that. And okay. So giant spiders, relatively easy thing to kill. And, I know where you begin in the world and I can create procedurally the world around you. So it kind of has rings of difficulties, kind of, kind of the further out that you go, um, it becomes more difficult. And then you're going to say, aha, I'm on to you. You know, now I know if I travel, if I just keep going West, it's going to get harder and harder. No, it's not like that. Um, I actually piece it up into zones and stuff and it becomes quite difficult. I think for the player to, to just immediately know where on the map is hard and where on the map is easy without getting information in game, um, to know that. But, but anyway, the idea is that um, I'm procedurally generating things that are somewhat easier, uh, closer to the start of the game, harder in more of the corners of the game. And so as you progress in the game and you become stronger in the game, more of the world opens up to you. Hmm. So it's kind of a very typical gating system, except um, like, for instance, in Red Dead Redemption, you have to go and do these like three quests and then and then you have the gun that you need and kind of the, you know, your character strong enough or whatever. And then you take down the guy and then you can go off to Mexico. Like there's just no way to go to Mexico without achieving these picture quests. That's a very strong gating uh, technique. Um, I'm going more for the soft gating where it's not so obvious. But when if you're kind of even though my game doesn't have levels, if, if you're like a level 10 guy there's indications that you're walking to a level 20 area and you should probably turn back. <laughs> and, um, and so you're like, Oh, okay. You know, I, I kind of found the edge of the fence, right. Of, of kind of where I can go. I'm not stopping you from going and maybe you can get through there onto your further quest goal and never encounter anything in which case like yeehaw for you. And there's like invisibility spells and things that help you with, with, you know, doing that. Um, so yeah. Have I answered your question now? Yes. <laughs> actually, I answered something. <laughs> actually, I was just thinking about Skyrim in the way that like Elder Scrolls games of the latter generation tend to level you up with all the enemies. Well, in a way, that is an interesting way to structure a game. But on one level, in terms of, let's say, 
being in living, breathing world, that means nothing is necessarily stronger or weaker than you, which kind of makes everything very much flatline when it yeah. comes to challenge. Like, I know there are some games, let's say Xenoblade Chronicles or Final Fantasy Twelve, where you can wander into an area and everything is super overleveled for you. Or let's say even Dark Souls, right? Dark yep. Souls has an area where you walk in and there's ghosts and you have no way to kill them. So perhaps there is a way to integrate an unfair scenario as a teaching tool. But again, your game is permadeath, which means that it's a little <laughs> more intimidating to integrate that kind of system in. Yeah, there's, um, you're absolutely right about that. And, and so what I'm about to say sounds contradictory to the other things. And that's just the nature of being a game designer. <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, some of these things I have implemented already programmed. Some of these things I haven't programmed yet, right? There's, so there's still concepts that I, and designs that I'm trying to implement and stuff. Um, okay, so when I said that I, I populate the world, um, I do. It's a living, breathing world. And, you know, if I plunk down a uh, a dragon's den in one location, the towns around that area are influenced by the dragon's den. Like their their economy is repressed and, um, you know, they have problems dealing with that dragon or whatever. And if you try to travel through that area, that dragon is has kind of a fixed strength. And so early in the game, you won't be able to take on the dragon. I'm sorry, everybody, but you won't be able to do that early on. So, so I think that's kind of cool because at the beginning part of the game, you got to be um, kind of like Bilbo. You, you got to like run around the dragon. Like you got to sneak your way because there's no way you can take him on face on. But it's so satisfying later on when you are more powerful and you can take him on. You no longer have to run away from him. Um, you can take him on and take him out and free those towns that to me is really cool. So even though I, I said like there's a scaling and stuff and there is, it's not to the extent that there isn't those scenarios as well. There are alternate choices. Yeah. So there, there's – when you go and you, you fight the spiders or something like that, they're going to be between level one and level four or something. Um, so if you're level 17 – uh, okay, those guys are just gonna be easy for you. Like, I'm not gonna scale them all the way up to level 17. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think like a dragon should be really a big deal and strong, and like you can't take them down until quite late game. Like that's what I think as a designer. And so you will learn that shorthand of oh, this is an ogre. Uh, I may be able to take him on, or this is a goblin. I can take him on for sure. Um, you know, you'll learn that as you play the game. And there's um. There's lore within the game that you'll be able to, uh, you know, learn that from. It, it's all in game. You don't have to go to a wiki to find out yeah. how strong do I have to be to take on a dragon. <laughs> okay, since we've been talking a lot about combat or possible combat scenarios, what yeah. is the combat like? It is very similar to Dragon Warrior. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I've posted some pics. Uh, it was part of my video. I did like a deep dive on the game. Oh, I for- don't think I've seen a picture of it. Okay. Um, so uh, it's very important to me because um, this is your story. Like when I play it, it's Thomas's story. When Zach plays it, it's Zach's story. You never see your character. That's really important to me because if I show you your character, it ruins what's in your imagination. And this game is definitely fueled by your imagination. And that's what I think makes it kind of cool is I'm trying to tap into what makes reading books cool and fun. What makes playing a tabletop role-playing game cool and fun is your imagination. Like your imagination is get fired up and, and does cool things. So if I actually showed you what your character looks like and it doesn't match what's in your imagination, then you've lost a lot. 
So you never actually see your character. And so everything in combat is face on just like Dragon Warrior. So, you know, the classic Dragon Warrior, you see the slime like right in front of you yeah. <laughs> and he's facing right at That's That's the way that it is. And, um, and so you can fight parties of, of monsters or single monsters. Um, and combat, in, like I said earlier, most role-playing games kind of filler stuff. In Archmage Rises, combat is just more of a choice. You level up through story. You level up through finding things. You level up through relationships. Um, you don't have to grind anything. You don't have to kill anything to level up. And that, to me, is a cool role-playing game. Um, so if you choose to go into combat... That could be your last combat ever. <laughs> and so, um, so many – here's another thing. When you go and you play any role-playing game, Dragon Age Origins, whatever and stuff, uh, you encounter some difficulty. It's like, kill them. <laughs> you know, like that's the immediate conclusion that you jump to. It's like, <laughs> hey, these guys are bothering. The sheriff's bothering the barmaid. Kill them. The, the orcs are bothering the humans. Kill them. Well, the it, is a, are- it is a fun choice though. Okay, okay. So it's just such a common choice and that's like always the way that we overcome these problems. And the games, they really – they kind of favor that. Not, I mean, maybe not kind of. They do favor that because that's the only way to improve your skills, increase your level and all this other stuff. So Archmage Rises, the combat is not the way that you level up. There are no experience points in Archmage Rises. There are um, – there's just power. You gain in power and you can gain in power through finding equipment, through um, – just certain things within the game and uh, different spells and all kinds of stuff. So, so you grow in power, but killing something doesn't make you more powerful. It's, it's a display maybe of your power, but it doesn't make you more powerful. And so wow. I, when I look at Archmage Rises, I think you're going to spend 25% of your time in combat and 75% of your time doing interesting things, constructing things, um, talking to different NPCs, trying to figure out which side you want to ally on on a particular issue. That to me is more interesting. Okay. So I still like, some- I have to say, sorry, I, I like shooting fireballs at skeletons. That to me is just an awesome game experience. So, <laughs> so there are skeletons in the game and there is a fireball spell. So Thomas can shoot fireballs at skeletons. <laughs> just in case we were missing it. <laughs> yeah. I don't want people to be like, oh, a role-playing game doesn't have any fun combat. No, no, no. It has super fun combat. It's just it's not the main point. Okay, so the combat is almost like an extension of the choice system that you already have implemented in the overarching metagame here. You got it, Zach. Okay. I'm I doing a good job at this interview. No, no, you're doing a great <laughs> job <laughs> explaining the concept slash game that is Archmage Rises. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... So what are you talking about in terms of options and leveling up in this combat system? Obviously, it's not in the same way as Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior, because <laughs> that is grinding a whole lot, which I enjoy. But obviously, that's not quite the same as this game. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'm getting close to 40. And I have a two-year-old. And I have another baby on the way. And I have a wife and lots of responsibilities at my church and other things. I don't have time to grind. I don't know. I did before in my life, but <laughs> at this stage of life, I have no time to grind. Okay. So Archmage Rises is a no grinding game. So Thomas can live his life. <laughs> okay. So um, that's correct. 
there is there's no grinding and and um, the level up system is is totally different. So I'll take a step back and. As I've been making this game, um, in some ways, I've been kind of thinking and working on this game for about 20 years. Um, just, you know, concepts, things that appeal to me, things I liked from games in the 90s and all this stuff. So, so in one sense, I, I've been working on it for a very long time. And I am not including anything in this game just because that's the way it's always done. Okay. So when I say to you, yeah, I'm making a role-playing game. And you're like, hey, cool. You know, kind of what's what's the level up experience, all this stuff. And I say, oh, well, actually there's no levels. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> How can you make a role-playing game without levels? Well, anytime I, dis- I go to put anything in this game, anything, combats, a spell, a location, anything, what value does this add to the game? Like what, what is special about this that's going to add to the game? And so just because we're used to experience points, we're used to a, a very traditional leveling system, a very linear leveling system and hit points and all these things, just because we're used to all that, that doesn't make them right, Zach. That doesn't mean that that's the best way to do a role-playing game. It just means no. <laughs> that's what we're used to. That's what's common. That's what's shorthand for making a role-playing game. So as I approach Archmage Rise, I say, I'm making a new kind of role-playing game, something the world has never seen. I'm scared it's something the world doesn't want. But anyway, <laughs> something the world has never seen. And uh, why do I have hit points? Okay, I have to have hit points as some measure of your life. Okay, um, they're in, but your hit points never increase. And I think that's really cool because your power increases, the magical shielding you can put on yourself increases to the amount of damage you can take so you can finally fight a dragon. But your actual lifeblood, like the amount of pints of blood in you, doesn't increase, <laughs> okay? So if, if, if they get through your magical defenses and you're taking body blows, I'm sorry, your ribs are cracking. I don't care if you're a really high-level mage or low-level mage. Your ribs are cracking and you have problems. So you begin the game. I think right now the HP is at 60. You have 60 hit points. That is your physical, like, like bones are healthy, blood is still in you. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you haven't sprained an ankle. Like, like, that's what the hit points represents. And then you have the magical shielding, which represents the kind of amount of damage you can repel or is resisted or, or all that kind of stuff. And so, so um, when it comes to levels, uh, there are no levels, but there is this thing called power. And um, we, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the game is really um, drawn from my experience of reading the Dragonlance novels. Uh, have you read those, Zach? I don't think I've ever read those. Okay. They were written in the 80s and um, uh, TSR created um, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, Gary Gigax or created Dungeons and Dragons and created TSR, which then went on to create like other things. And so they created this new campaign system for advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was second edition, but I could be wrong on that. Um, so they created Dragonlance and part of creating Dragonlance, they created all these modules that you could play through. But they wanted to kind of make this real for people or they wanted to like get another way to kind of rope people into playing the Dragonlance campaign setting. And so they wrote a series of novels. So they had these, uh, these two authors um, write a series of novels, uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. And uh, Tracy Hickman is the game designer that worked at TSR that created uh, Dungeon- the uh, Dragonlance campaign setting. And so they wrote these novels they're basically novelizations of the game modules. Okay, so he already knew what all the you know plot points were and the timing and all that stuff because they were already game modules, and they just turned them into novels. And I read those novels, and I just fell in love with them. And and uh, now the shared world of Dragonlance has something close to 140 different novels um, in that world. Like, there's like a lot of them, um, and there's probably I would say good ones. There's probably 10. <laughs> 
<laughs> now I've just ticked off every Dragonlance yeah. player that's listening. That's um, a good percentage. Yeah. So anyway, so the core six are like phenomenal. Okay. And uh, they made a real impression on me and I still love them to this day and I, I've been rereading them. And so as I was rereading them uh, a couple of uh, – about a year ago, I was reading them and there's this one character. Uh, his name is Rastlin. And he starts out with a lot of potential and kind of natural ability in magic. Um, but he's also kind of a loner and a bit of a jerk and all these things. And so there's this whole character arc that happens across these six novels of how he does become the greatest mage to ever live. Okay, the most powerful mage to ever live. And it's, it's kind of a long story and it's really interesting and uh, all the things that he encounters and, and the choices that he makes. And some of the choices, are he's really a jerk about um, pursuing power. But a lot of people in life are jerks when it comes to pursuing power and getting ahead in the world and all this stuff. So anyway, I was reading that. And when you read the novelization version, there's no mention of hit points, of levels, of, of anything like that. They, they're just stories. And in a sense, they're more real. And I want to try and capture that in the game, Archmage Rises. So Archmage Rises is kind of based on this Razzlin character arc that's in the Dragonlance novels or the core six Dragonlance novels. And so because they're, Razzlin simply grows in power, like he, he finds a spell book, he learns some, some more spells or, or new techniques of the same spells, he grows in power. And so he's able to shoot a stronger fireball, fireball by novel two than he was in novel one. Um, by uh, getting better equipment, uh, runes that are on his robes and all this stuff, he's able to become more and more powerful. He gets this thing called a, a dragon uh, – what is it? Dragon orb. Yeah, Dragon Orb. And uh, just by having the Dragon Orb, he's able to cast spells like four times his normal level and, and all this stuff. So I'm taking that concept and I'm taking everything, level, experience points, skill points, intelligence level. I'm boiling all that down to one stat, power. So you play the game. You start off at t- 10 power, okay? You have a power of 10. And as you do things in the game world, that that can become 20, 30, 50, 1,000, maybe even 10,000. Like there's no upper limit on the power in the game. And so I think that's really cool coming from traditional role-playing games where it's like, hey, you've reached level 20. That's it. You're not going to get any more powerful. Um, That's not true in Archmage Rises. And so um, because the leveling system isn't experience-based, it's kind of like object-based or concept-based. Like, hey, you learned this new concept. You are now more powerful. You can see how combat kind of takes a secondary uh, seat, right? Like, yeah. you, just, you just play the game and you progress and you get more powerful. Um, and, uh, and so that allows you to cast stronger spells. And some of those spells might be um, invisibility that simply lasts longer. You can be invisible for a week instead of two days. Um, and so the spell system, I think, is, is quite unique and, and, um, and I think interesting, but I'm kind of biased. Um, <laughs> and so, so the spells, like say like Fireball, it'll take your current power, multiply it by how good you are at the Fireball spell, and that equals your damage result. So let's say the Fireball spell always does 50% power. Okay, so if you are at 10 power, then it does five damage. If you're 100 power, it does 50 damage. So what that means is the spells always scale with you. And so now you don't have, hey, I have fire one and then later on I got fire two and I never use fire one anymore. And then I get fire three and I never use fire one or fire two. Um, all that goes away. I don't have to create tons and tons and tons of spells for you to just kind of churn through until you get to the upper crust of the really good ones. You have good spells from the beginning. And as you get more powerful, those spells grow with you 
in power. Huh. Wow. Okay, so you can pick any spell you want, right? On a, uh, a long list, or is there like a more intuitive way to learn these spells? Okay, so taking a step back, I always say that at the beginning of every answer, right? Taking a step back. <laughs> taking um, a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of concepts in this game. So, um, okay, so magic is not really magic in this game, okay? And what, do I, what I mean by that is magic is just um, an allegory for skill, talent, power um, in our real world, okay? So a lawyer who's a really good lawyer, I would say is a high-power lawyer. Um, a programmer who's a really good programmer is a high-power programmer. So when you start the game, you start off as a novice, and you have, like I said, 10 power. And, um, and you're not very good with the magic that you have. But over time, you become better and better. You become you know, you, a journeyman and then a master at your craft. Okay? And so as you um, increase in, in that power, you uncover more spells that you can cast. And the point of the game, a big chunk of the game, is searching for those spells. So you start off knowing a few. And how do you know those few? Because of the school that your parents chose for you to go to, which is one of the first choices you make in character creation, is you choose which mage is going to be your teacher for the next uh, 10 years. And that determines your first few starting spells that you learn from that mage school. And then you go and you hunt and look for other spells. So when you start the game, you probably know about three spells. Um, That to me seems to be the right number of starting spells. And uh, through over the course of the game, you're going to find uh, right now, I think my upper limit is around 30 spells. Um, again, there's no junk spells, so it's going to be a smaller list than many other role playing games. Um, and so uh, some of those spells are lost um, and need to be found. Some of those spells um, are in a different language. And so you have to go and learn that language in order to be able to kind of decrypt and understand these spells and stuff. So there's a lot of um, role-playing to do within the game in order to get a, a giant spell list. Okay, so none of these spells are going to be overpowered, I'm going to guess. No, and um, one thing that I didn't mention was uh, in combat, uh, my concept for combat is kind of like golfing or kind of like um, playing baseball. When somebody throws a pitch to a major league baseball player, um, they choose to swing for the fences or they choose to swing for a base hit or kind of whatever they can get away with. Sometimes they bunt. Why do they do that? One reason is when you swing for the fences, you tend to strike out more, right? Um, your accuracy kind of goes down um, and, and other things. Um, boxing becomes a little bit better of an analogy. Um, I, I enjoy watching boxing and um, I, I do a little bit of boxing uh, myself. And so in boxing – it's it's about um, speed and timing and choosing kind of your your battles, like when to hit heavy and when to just jab, um, when to even throw a punch or when just to wait and, and all that. And so the combat is designed around that. And so in boxing, why don't you throw out all your heaviest stuff right away? Well, the first reason is, is because you're probably going to miss. Second thing is because it telegraphs. Whenever you like really lean back with your body, try to get all your body weight and whatever, it kind of telegraphs what's coming, makes it easier for your opponent to dodge. Um, the third thing is if you miss, 
it takes a lot out of you, like not just opening you up, but just energy wise, like it takes a lot out of you. And so um, when a boxer is uh, in a fight for the, you know, full 12 rounds, like going the long haul, um, they have to conserve their energy and they have to decide when to when to swing for the fences and when to just try to you know get a little jab out. And so that's the that's the combat here as well. And and this goes back to the novelization as well because I was trying to work through well why when this Razzlan character encounters uh, a creature or a situation why doesn't he just spam highest level fireball bam and just like <laughs> kill everything. And the novels, the reason is, is because it wears him out. He just gets so exhausted. We're talking like going into a coma type exhausted that you never want to like use yourself up that much. You always want to use the minimal amount of energy. And this is also true in the animal kingdom. When you look at fish that eat off of other fish or whatever, the animal kingdom, spiders and and whatever, they sit in their web and they wait. Why? They're preserving energy. So that they can then kill, get their next meal and have enough energy to make it to that next meal. So that the conservation of energy. And so that's what I'm doing with the combat is that you there's a slider that you decide I'm going to put 100% of my power into this next cast or I'm just going to jab. I'm just going to put 10% of my power into it. So if you have 100 power and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to do 10% of my power. So that's 10 points of power times the fireball of 50% equals five damage. So you can see how you yourself are choosing whether you're going to cast the 50 damage version of fireball or the five or 10 point damage version of fireball. That's all up to you. And it's all with one spell, like fireball spell. Like I don't have to have fire one, fire two, fire three, fire four in order to give you those different ranges. Um, You choose. And so the... The closer you are to putting in your maximum amount of power into one spell cast, the more it drains you. So what that means is if you do kind of 20% of your total power, um, which is kind of like you're swinging, but you're not swinging the hardest you can possibly swing, or you're throwing the baseball, but you're not throwing it the hardest you possibly can, um, you could probably do that 40 times in combat. But if you're if you're putting your all into it, you can only cast five spells in combat. And then you're so wiped out that you're probably going to die. <laughs> so a lot of choices with a little bit of thought. <laughs> I would hope there's a lot of thought to the choices, but yeah. sure. Yeah. A lot of choices, a lot of thought. Just in general. So that's why you only have 30 spells. So you can actually make this more okay, focused from that on perspective, these things. Yeah. With a little bit of thought. Because, yeah, I don't want to give you 180 spells. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> your brain would explode. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, so in terms of crafting and buildings, because what you've told me so far doesn't seem to relate to those things <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh, Zach, you called me out. <laughs> <laughs> Are those just like in the idea development phase or have you thought about these in any cohesive way that integrates with the rest of these elements? Yes, I have. Okay. Yep. Um, there you go. There's the shortest answer to this interview. (laughs) Okay. I'll expand on that. So, um, in the game, uh, I've actually built many different sections of the game. So you would be surprised to hear that I've actually built quite a bit of the, uh, building your mage tower code. (laughs) It's actually, um, 
I w- it's not even close to done, but you know, it, it's, it's not just in the idea phase. I've actually built it and it works and, and you know, you, you get money and you can buy things and stuff and, and you can build your tower and everything. And it's pretty cool. Um, so one reason for that is, uh, some of these ideas are interconnected. And so it's like, oh, I can't proceed on this idea until I build a little more of that idea. Um, that's like the, wow, I'm so smart and clever and, and I sound really cool on a podcast reason. The other reason is sometimes I just get bored with what I'm working on. So then I, I just jump over like, ah, I'm tired of all this story driven stuff. And I start working on the building thing or I start working on the combat thing. So that's the, Shh, don't tell anybody answer. Um, so in the, in the case of building, um, I love, uh, building games. Uh, I, I think it's because I'm entrepreneurial and stuff. I like building organizations and stuff. But So I love management sim games, um, whether it's Transport Tycoon or Capitalism or SimCity 4, not the new one, um, <laughs> Railroad Tycoon. Like I love building stuff type games. And, and when I would play The Sims, I loved building the house. I kind of like The Sims and I would get a better job in order to get more money, but I like building the house. And so when I think about what's cool to be a mage – it's cool to build your own mage tower. That's what I think is cool. And <laughs> Rasslin in the Dragonlance games, he Dragonlance game and books, he had a really cool mage tower. And so I want the ability to create a really cool mage tower. So you've played XCOM, right? I'm pretty sure you've played XCOM. I've played enough of XCOM to say that I know what's happening. <laughs> okay. So so there's a base building element to XCOM, right? Like yeah. you decide uh, we're going to build a room for scientists. We're going to build a room for engineers. We're going to build a room for power. We're going to build a room for something else. And uh, some of those rooms you have to build in order to unlock other rooms. But some of those, they just unlock game options. Like, oh, now you have this room. Now you can, I don't know, do underwater levels or something. Like, it's just, it just unlocks different things. There's like a psionics room. And now suddenly your your soldiers have uh, psi weapons and psi capabilities and stuff, right? So the, the mage tower building is like that. It's like XCOM's base building. And so you build these rooms. So for instance, um, in order to make potions and uh, trinkets and stuff and sell them for money because you need money because you have to live in this world, um, you need to have a workshop. So you have to build a workshop and then you can make potions and that kind of stuff and and get some money. If you're going to have apprentices, you have to build a room for the apprentices to live in. And, um, you know, it's, this is not tiny tower. Okay. This is not a mage tower that you have to run all these, these different buildings. But I think there's the maximum tower has 30 rooms and there's about 40 room choices. So what that means is you can't have everything in your tower. You have to decide this is important to me. This is not. Um, so for instance, um, if you want to create your own equipment, which I think most people will want to do, you have to have a workshop room uh, for like an enchanting room, basically. So you build an enchanting room in your mage tower, and that opens up the whole area of the game where you can enchant robes, create wands, uh, create your mage staff, enchant your, you know, your helmet and, and all this stuff. And so you can get ingredients from within the world. When I say ingredients, I mean like cloth or a helmet or something like that, um, not like a profession where you're like, mashing berries and making you know something <laughs> um so you you get certain ingredients and then you you can cast spells that you know onto the equipment that you make and then you can wear it and so when you go into combat your first spell that you cast doesn't have to be resist fire um because you're wearing something that already has resist fire on it you kind of like pre-cast it 
And uh, I haven't decided yet if those uh, precast things wear out or wear off and you have to keep doing it or you just do it once and that's good forever. But you'll remake things because as you become more powerful, like you go from uh, boots that are 10% fire uh, resistant and you're like, hey, now I can make 20% fire resistant. And then you go and make new boots and put them on and stuff. Um, And then there's another thing which – it's definitely still in the idea stage. I haven't done any coding towards it, but I think it's like really, really awesome is golems. You can create your own golem and, you know, rock golem or an iron golem or whatever. And, um, and you can bring those golems with you as pets and, uh, go into combat with them. And I just think that's awesome. Okay. So in terms of the overall world, while you're doing this, right, you said that the world is living. So are things happening while you're constructing a mage tower or enchanting equipment or other such things. Yes. So, and you, is there a time limit to how long you live or is that arbitrarily decided on each game? You're really good at asking game questions, Zach. You're like totally on the right page. Yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. Okay. So the one resource that in this world, you, I, Donald Trump, Bill Gates, we all have, the same resource is time. Neither of us has more or less time in a day. And we may have longer and shorter lives, but we all share this resource of time. Time is immensely important resource in Archmage Rises. You begin the game at 16. You will die of natural causes at some point. It's determined by your genetics, which is part of the procedural generation. So you might live 40 years. You might live 70 years. Um, there's a few ways that you can extend your, your lifespan. And some of those things um, are evil and stain your soul and all this stuff. Um, so, so you only have a certain amount of time. And so as you do things, learning certain spells, building your tower, um, you know, enchanting stuff, weeks go by. Months go by. And so the game ends either by natural causes, like you're dead, or by story choices that you've made, you know, you died. But eventually, you die. And there's a funeral, and that's your story. Your story is over. Oh, wow. <laughs> so permadeath regardless of what you do. Um, yeah. And isn't that the real world? Yeah. Don't the choices we make every day matter because we have limited time? And because there's permanent consequences to our choices. So this is kind of the philosophical or spiritual background that went into designing this game. So there are choices that matter. Every choice matters in Archmage Rises. Yeah. So if you don't die of making a bad choice or perhaps making a choice that was good, but then again, end your story, you could just end up dying. Yeah, but it's um, you're going to know that it's coming. Because like all of us, you know, the bones start to get creakier, you start to have less energy and, you know, you, you feel it coming. And so, again, going back to an earlier question you had about being fair to the player, I'm going to be totally fair to the player. You'll know that you're kind of in your second last year or your last year. Like, it's time to wrap things up. If you've been fighting with someone, you know that it's time to maybe go and make peace. You have your last chance to uh, maybe get married if that's one of the things you want to do in the game. Um, there's like you know that the end is coming or you're really evil and you're going <laughs> to grab people off the street and suck the life force out of them and, and add two more years to your life so you can keep playing because you're more important than anybody else in the world. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so you could theoretically live forever or is there a cap to that too? 
Um, or, I, or a intent or a planned cap anyway. Yeah. So, uh, I have to play test that, um, in my mind there, no one escapes death. Um, you're just prolonging. Um, and so, uh, I've thought of a lot of ways you can prolong life through evil choices. Um, I'm struggling on the good side to have really like compelling, interesting options. Um, one of them is kind of what happened to uh, King Hezekiah when uh, God came to him and said, okay, Hezekiah, you are about to die. Get your affairs in order. You, you've had a good run at being king, but it's over. And he's like, no, Lord, I just got things going here and whatever and stuff. And so the prophet comes back and says, you know what? You're right. You are a good king. I'm going to give you an extra 10 years or 15 years. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I can implement something like that into the game. Um, but anyway, there's some way to extend your life, but, but the, the cost of extending your life, I think is going to be greater than the actual life you get. So like, um, it, in a sense, it costs you three years to get two years. You're like, why would anybody ever do that? But what I mean is if you've been working up towards it, you can get an extension and maybe a second extension. But by that point, like you can't do it anymore, um, because the cost is so high. Or maybe the first time you do it, it costs something. And the second time you do it, it's like cost a lot more. And so eventually it, it just caps out on you. Isn't it a weird role-playing game? Yes. <laughs> it sounds like it's more role-playing than a game in some senses. Yes, that is what I'm trying to achieve. I'm using the computer. I'm, u- I'm creating an AI that is the GM. And I'm giving you a campaign world that I'm creating procedurally and somewhat there's some static pieces. Um, and then I'm letting you loosen it. See, see what happens. Okay, so what is the approximate length of this game? Because depending on how long it is, I can imagine the concept of either dying or not dying to be more important or less important. Yeah. Um, I will have a better sense of that when I'm able to play a lot more of the game. So... That first real round of playtesting will bring a lot of ideas into clarity. Um, r- like right now, I'm working on some of the uh, s- the story quest stuff. And I'm like, man, you can really fly through a quest quickly when you don't have all this grinding <laughs> to do. <laughs> and so like you can get a quest and there's no overworld map to run around like, oh, I got to find this place. How do I find it? Like there's none of that. Yeah, all and that so- filler was so good. <laughs> <laughs> you're missing so, all the filler yeah it's true i'm missing all the filler and um and so you can complete a quest that in a traditional game might take half an hour and you're doing it in three minutes so am i creating the role-playing game where you can play an entire lifetime in four hours maybe i might be um and that might be kind of cool i i really look to ftl as kind of a good amount of time to spend in a game. FTL can end in, uh, I don't know, like first four minutes, but, um, but generally I've been able to, most of my games have been two hours. Um, I think a long game when you get to the end and you have the final battle, I think maybe is a four hour game. So, um, permadeath is a very dangerous, um, feature. Some people have been very vocal to me about, I love permadeath because it makes everything matter. I have other people that have said, I hate permadeath because just as I get invested into something, then I'm dead and I, you know, I don't want to replay all that beginning and all that stuff. 
So I have to find the right balance of time to the permadeath feature. I will not give up on permadeath. I'm pretty certain. I'm pretty certain of the permadeath. So now what I have to look at is the time. When you play Rogue Legacy, um, Rogue Legacy, I think some of the time, when I play it anyway, my my guys last 30 seconds, (laughs) 45 (laughs) seconds, maybe two minutes for a long one. Okay, the permadeath doesn't matter anymore because there's always like another guy waiting to pop out and and go. If you spent 20 hours in a role-playing game and then – you went and faced off against a dragon. You thought you could win, but you didn't, and you died. You might be really mad <laughs> and, <laughs> and storm away, and I'm never playing that game again. Um, so I think there's – if you can play a lifetime in an evening, I think that's the right balance. But you know, I'm early in the stage here, Zach, so I'm, I'm yeah. perfectly willing to change that uh, later on. So is there any rollover between games or is it just every game is a separate game? Um, my vision has always been every game is a separate game. It's a uh, – I, I view the game world as a sandbox literally um, that has been like raked and is like pure clean and then plunk. Like you land somewhere and there's already a ripple from kind of where you landed. And then you go through the world making ripples basically, affecting people, taking out people elevating people, helping people, healing people, like like you're affecting this world. And so I like that you you kind of mature, you reach old age and you die and that world and that story is over and then you start fresh again with a brand new sandbox. I like that. People have said to me, I kind of like the idea of of starting a new life in the world I was already mucking with. That's intriguing to me. That brings a lot of game design challenges because now it doesn't just have to be balanced. Uh, your effect on the world doesn't have to be balanced for one life. It has to be balanced for multiple lives. And I just – I haven't been thinking that way. So have, allowing the player to have – I love legacy in a game. I love genealogy in a game. Um, I like the idea that you play for a while and then you play the son of and then you play the son of. Like I think that's kind of cool. Okay, the daughter of the daughter of. I'm not going to be sexist. <laughs> Archmage rises. You play as a woman or, or a man. There's no voiceover. There's no uh, you know Assassin's Creed Unity issues <laughs> around this. So um, so I just like that idea of like continuing on having like a, a multi generational story. I really like that concept. I'm not sure Archmage rises is that game. Um, I will continue to explore that but i'm pretty sure i'm resetting the the field every time you you play i i think that's the way to go to be honest (laughs) oh well there you go everybody zach says it's that way way. don't say i don't listen to the to the people well it it just you if you want to have permanent consequences there's no way you can have carryover it's just not going to work out yeah good point okay so i don't have any other questions that i can think of (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if you have anything else to add that I haven't asked or something else you have in your mind, please feel free. Um, what's interesting is you haven't asked me about the spiritual side of the game. Well, I wasn't sure whether or not it was a Christian game or not. <laughs> because in some sense it is because you are a Christian and you're making the game. But in another sense, there's nothing that's explicitly scripture-based or let's say I am a Christian game developer and I'm making a Christian game for a Christian <laughs> audience, etc. So <laughs> Yeah. 
in terms of it being part of your personality, it's a Christian game, but otherwise not so much. Is that the vibe I'm getting? Yeah, that's that's a really succinct way of putting it. Um, you know, I, I was just recently with uh, Michael Eusdevines uh, of um, Heroes of Issachar, and um, he and I were talking about you know Christian games and Christian game development and stuff. And um, you know, he said to me, he really challenged me at one point, and he said, "There is no such thing as a Christian game." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "There are Christian people." There's no Christian table. There's no Christian um, game. There's no Christian car um, and all that stuff. And he's right, right? Like there is no game that's saved and going to heaven. There's no, there's no keyboard that is, um, you know, a follower of Christ, right? So, and yeah, he's absolutely right. We, we use the label incorrectly, right? We say, oh, that's a Christian film or that's a Christian song or, or whatever. Um, no, as you said, Zach, these are things made by Christians. So I'm making my game for humans. <laughs> That's who my game's for. If you are a dog, a pet, a gopher, uh, you can't play my game. So I don't know if that's going to start Gamergate 2, but uh, you know, wow. <laughs> I'm making my game for humans. And um, I can't believe you're so speciesist. <laughs> it's Goodness. true. It, it runs – well, I'm in the north and you know everybody in the north is like that. So <laughs> – <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I'm, there are definitely, um, Christian themes, concepts, worldview permeated throughout the game. It's like the idea that consequences last forever. That's a Christian concept. (laughs) Um, it's just, um, when you're playing the game, yeah, you, you probably won't see it that way, right? And so um, I like to say within um, what we call Christian entertainment or um, just entertainment in general, um, but anyway, in, in Christian music or something like that, there are worship songs which are designed for the church to use to glorify God. And then there's other songs which glorify God, which are for kind of everybody. Like it doesn't matter if you're – it doesn't matter if you're part of a church. It doesn't even matter if you're a Christian or something. Like I, I look at a song like A Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. I'm not saying they were Christians. I'm saying they're not Christians. I'm saying that song has an amazing Christian message to it. Um, and and so I'm making that kind of game as opposed to uh, Bible trivia or you know that, that other kind of stuff. Yeah, which I think is a good thing because we have had a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> I think we might need something a little new. Uh, yeah, I've been talking with some uh, Christian devs um, this this weekend. And um, when I look at movies, um, there's Christian movies. And uh, we, we use the label to mean like Christian themed or made by Christians. Um, or sometimes we just mean Christian as in not offensive to Christians um, because of maybe the language or because of the themes or, or something like that. So anyways, there's uh, – using the term wrongly, there's Christian movies. Um, and most people are like, yeah, Christian movies, those are cheesy. Everything changed when Passion of the Christ came out. Passion of the Christ couldn't get distribution. Mel Gibson – had to fund the distribution himself because nobody else would sign on for it because they're like, no, this 
clearly it's too Christian of a movie. It's too close to the scripture or whatever. It's too gory or whatever. It's never going to, no one's ever going to watch this. So he had to fund it himself. And once that happened, now you see an opening for movies like Heaven is Real, uh, Blind Side with Sandra Bullock, um, and uh, Son of God, another Left Behind movie. Um, there's all these movies. You have a Moses Exodus movie coming out. Like there's now legitimacy to Christian art in movies. I'm not sure we've seen that yet in games. And I'm not pretending that Archmage Rises is the passion of the Christ uh, for games. I actually think that game is that dragon cancer, which a friend of mine, uh, Ryan and and Josh are making. Um, I look at that and say, when that game comes out, I think that people are going to go, wow, Christian games doesn't equal cheesy. Christian games equals thoughtful. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. And so I, I hope that Archmage Rises falls within that legacy of, wow, Christian games equals thoughtful. I hope that that's what I'm making. So are you going to label yours a Christian game in advertising or are you just going to say, I'm a Christian who makes video games? I am labeling my game as made for humans. Okay. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to make sure because. Yeah, I, I, um, as it stands right now, Archmage Rises is generally rejected by the traditional church because it has themes that they don't like. Um, It wrestles with issues they don't want to talk about. It has magic in it, which is very no-no in many Christian circles. Um, There's all kinds of things. So basically I'm kicked out of the, the normal Christian conservative circles. Okay. So, um, but I, I am a Christian and I'm making this game as, as an act of worship and uh, a use of my talents and abilities. And so I can't think of something that is more Christian than that. Um, but I know it doesn't fit the mold of what most people think of in terms of a Christian game. And so I do not want or think it's accurate to label it a Christian game the same way that Charlie Churchmouse would be labeled a Christian game. So I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cause we have answered all the questions <laughs> <laughs> and ones you didn't even ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This has been Thomas Henschel and you can find him on archmagerises.com and he's also known as Lord Yabo around these parts of the internet. So you're on Twitter and Facebook and other such places, correct? Yep. I am Lord Yabo, Y-A-B-O, um, on uh, Twitter. And yeah, I'm on the Theology Gaming um, Facebook group and, and stuff, Christian Game Developers group and, and other places. I have blogs on Gamma Sutra and other places. Indie and Haven. And Archmage Rises is on Facebook also. <laughs> yeah, you go to archmagerises.com and you can hit all the other stuff kind of from there, including me. Where does the Lord Yabo name come from? I'm curious. <laughs> wow. I didn't think that would come up. Um, okay. So since you know, it's a Gundam, which is your, uh, some kind of Gundam is your avatar most of the time. So that, that is true. Um, I love Gundam, especially super deformed Gundam. I just think that's the coolest, but um, I secretly wish I was Japanese. Don't tell anybody, but shh. <laughs> 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 Quiet. Yeah, quiet everyone. The Canadian who wants to secretly be Japanese. So um, I uh, I was watching um, this uh, mini series called uh, Shogun by James Curvel or Carvel. Um, oh. It was made in the eighties, 
And uh, I was watching based off the novel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, it's like late 80s or something. And so I was watching that and um, it was around the time of uh, Quake 3, um, Half-Life, that kind of time frame. And so I was like, you know what? I need to pick a name that nobody else has. You know, like everybody has, I don't know, Aragorn or Legolas or whatever. Like everybody's like there's a bazillion of those and stuff. So I'm going to pick a name that's like unique. And also like every time I go and play a game, I'm going to – you know, use the same alias, um, basically, right? So, um, so Lord Yabo is one of the generals that is in that story, and um, and nobody knows that, and and so um, you know, I just use Lord Yabo. And it's never taken anywhere. I mean, now your podcast listeners are going to go take it from all of the <laughs> all the gaming sites and forums that I'm not a part of. They're going to go steal my name. But anyway, um, I've taken it. And so I had this really funny uh, occurrence when I was playing uh, StarCraft II. I was in a ranked game, and the other guy knew who Lord Yabo was, and we were talking about that rather than fighting each other, and it was kind of funny. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, Lord Yabo. That's right. Lord Yabo. <laughs> That's right. That's how you say it. Well done. <laughs> All right. So Thomas Central secretly wants to be Japanese. Hi. Zaki-san. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been the Theology Gaming Podcast. You can find us on iTunes. You can give us a five-star rating because this has been the best interview ever. <laughs> And, I agree. Yes, uh, yes. Thomas Central agrees. <laughs> oh, I'm so vain. <laughs> <laughs> you can contact us on Theology Gaming University, which is our Facebook group. Just send us in a request for an invite, and you're automatically let in most of the time. Unless you're a spammer <laughs> or something else, in which case you were not join our group. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, all right, that has been it. And say goodbye. Thanks for having me, Zach. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.